Well, good morning. Thank you guys for being and gathering with us here at Mission Church. Uh, we are thankful that you're here. My name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here, along with Pastor Justin. And so thank you guys for gathering with us. Like you saw in that video, uh, one of the things that we are about here at Mission Church is these groups of people throughout our city called missional community groups. And in that, that is our heartbeat, what you've seen in that video, that we would be a group of people that are gathering regularly, that love one another, that care for one another, that take care of one another, but also are engaging um, in mission together. And through that, our prayer is, is that other people who are lost and undone without Jesus would be attracted to that type of community. And so in that, our heartbeat is to, again, to worship Jesus, is to make disciples and to multiply throughout this city, seeing people saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what's awesome about that, some good news in that, is that God not only calls us to do that as, as people, but he calls us to do that as a group of people. And we can really see that um, in this whole idea of community. And today we're going to continue our sermon series called Saturate, and in that we are talking about the gospel saturating every aspect of your life, your, your private life, your public life, where you work, how you live, your marriage, your relationship with your kids, grandkids, your singleness, all of those things would be reflected um, in the gospel purpose. Now, in that, it's, it's interesting that over the last uh, several years especially, not only in the church, but also in our culture, this idea of community has become extremely important. Uh, just think about the television shows that a lot of us watch. I mean, even going back to the 90s, I'll date myself some, um, shows like Friends, um, you know, 90210, all, all these kind of shows that reflect a group of people peering in and seeing how this group of people interact with each other, such as uh, you know, Seinfeld is a classic example of peering into a, a group that is in a community living out life, and we often get to watch that. Terms like social media, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, whatever it is, that, that we live in a society where people more than ever are probably hungry to be in community and be in relationships with other people, and yet sociologists will tell you that it's very clear since the invention of these social media outlets that our culture has become le or more and more disconnected with each other. More people are depressed, more people are lonely, more people are thirsty and hungry for these relationships, even though we have all of these avenues, all of these ways that at a click of a button, at a text message, at a phone call, you can be in contact with someone else, and yet people are desperately craving relationship. Even for those of us who read a lot of Christian books, one of the buzzwords that is definitely this idea of community. There are tons of books um, that even in preparation for this sermon, I read chapter after chapter after book after book, thinking, looking at, marinating on this idea of what is community. But just like any time that we use a, a word in our society for everything, it has a tendency to lose its depth. It has a tendency to lose its weightiness. And so we've got to really think about this morning, this idea of community, as Peter is writing this letter to who? 
a community, a community of believers, a community he has called the elect exiles, the chosen strangers. These are people who follow Jesus in this, eight, this land of Asia during this time. It's, I think it's actually modern-day Turkey. But Peter is writing these believers who, as the culture is heading one direction, the Bible and the gospel and the person work of Jesus is calling them to live in a very different way. They've been ostracized by the culture. They've been pushed to the, to the margins, margins, not margarine, that's a plastic that we eat, all right? But this idea of just being shoved to the outlying corners of society, that people are, are socially persecuting us, which is very reflective of, of what we see in our news today, especially here in America. We don't have this threat of necessarily being killed for our faith, but we do have a constant threat of being pushed out, made fun of, um, and ridiculed for us believing in Jesus. If you have been with us over the last several weeks, we have seen from 1 Peter kind of 1 through 12, this whole idea of Peter reminding them of what the gospel is and the security that we have in the person and work of Jesus, that if you truly are saved, you cannot lose that. It will not be taken away from it. It cannot happen. Why? Because it is a declared inheritance from God to his chosen children. God, before the foundations of the earth, declared, I'm going to have this many sheep. And what's awesome as Jesus being the chief shepherd, it is guaranteed that when all of this is said and done, that whoever he has saved will be saved. And so we can rejoice in that idea. Beginning in 13, verse 13, we kind of change from these philosophical truths to real implications and applications and supplications for our lives. And we continue that as we learned from Pastor Justin last week or a few weeks earlier before that even, that God has called us to be different, to be holy for I am holy. That means to be unique because I am infinitely unique, declares the Lord. And so we are supposed to live very differently than society, and that is actually our greatest apologetic. It's actually what compels people to be drawn into this community and into what it means to be a follower of Jesus is because we are so different from the rest of the world. And in that, that begins with a healthy fear of God and what that means and who he is and a, and a healthy understanding that we need to, you know, just war against the sin in our lives. And so today we pick up in, in verse 22 this idea that, that Peter is going to continue to develop in community, but specifically because we are saved, because we will forever be saved, because we are to live uniquely, then how do the group of people, specifically us, as Mission Church, live within community? And I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about biblical church community, and hopefully, by God's help, we'll clear some of those up today. In a book that was given to me by the Southern Baptist Convention um, called Life on Mission uh, by Dustin Will and Aaron Coe, it says this, Life on Mission can be defined as this, a biblical, uh, excuse me, a biblical picture of community, being part of a family of God and working together so that people see a clear portrait of who God can be as their father. So that's kind of a, a, a launch pad for us to begin looking specifically at this passage today. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, says this, 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2. So put away all malice, all deceit, and all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so what I'm going to do this morning, I'm actually going to start in verses 23 and 24, and then I'm going to do a, what was it, a sarcasm sandwich or something last week, <laughs> whatever it was. We're going, to, we're going to sandwich this, but in that, um, I'm going to start with verses 23 and 24, then go back to 22, and then we're going to hit chapter 2, just so you don't get confused here. So looking specifically at the beginning, 1 Peter 1, 23 through 24, we get this picture here from Peter's writing, where he says this, right? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is the good news that was preached to you. The reason why I'm starting with that is that if you read this text, just as I've read it here, Um, He says to do something, but he says to do it, why? Because of the Word, all right? Because of the Word. And what has he done up until these verses? Man, he has been talking about the Word of God. He has been talking about this community. He has been talking about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so when we see this passage here in verse 23, he uses the term born again. Now, how many of you grew up in church? Anybody? How many of you grew up in a type of church where they used words like saved, all right, and born again? Was I the only church? Anybody else? All right, so three or four of us. I mean, it wasn't talk about following Jesus or being a Christian. I grew up in the type of church where typically it was a, a larger, healthy individual standing up on a stage, sweating a lot. He would run at any moment or go, woo, okay, after sitting, he sounded like a wrestler, all right? But in this, he would say a lot of times, are you born again, right? Are you, a, are you a hear these even in the statements? Well, so-and-so has come out and said that you are a born again Christian. Now, what's difficult in saying such things as a born again Christian, I just want you to know there's no such thing as a person who isn't a Christian who isn't born again. They're exactly the same thing. If you are a Christian, you have been 
born again. Theologically, we throw out this term. It's actually the doctrine of regeneration. Is the idea that we see over and over in Scripture that if you have been saved by Jesus, that you have been literally born again. There's that passage in Corinthians that a lot of us have a coffee mug or t-shirt about that says we're a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the idea that we see a lot in John's writing. If you've read through the Gospels of John, like in John chapter 1 or in 1 John chapter 3 or in John chapter 3 verse 3 where it says, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we see this picture here of how are you born again? Well, through the word, through the gospel, not just any good news, but the good news of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That is how you are saved. Even Jesus says that you will come to faith, and faith comes by hearing the word of the Lord. Through the preaching and teaching of human means, God saves men and women. He changes their lives. This is all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, in our, our verses today, mentions the word four times in the passage. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, it is the gospel that has changed you. It is the gospel that must unite this community of faith. All other seed is perishable, the scripture tells us. But the imperishable seed is the seed of the gospel. If Jesus plants the word inside of your existence, it will bring forth much fruit. If you build your life or anything else on anything else, it will surely crumble and perish. If Mission Church is built on friendship, affinity groups, program, behavior modification, then Peter would call these things being built upon our flesh and our glory. What will that happen? He tells us there. It's going to wither. It's going to wither like the grass, right? It is going to um, it is going to, like a flower that's on the end of a plant, it is going to fall off, it is going to wither, it is going to die. And so it's important for us to understand this when we're looking at community, that we don't look at it through the lens of flesh and our own glory. I mean, have you ever thought about this about church? Your flesh. I'm tired. Anybody tired? I confess that, and I'm tired. I'm too busy for church. I'm too tired for church. I'm bored. I want this. I want that. I, I, I want church or being involved in church to be easy. You know, those are all fleshly things. These are the things that I want. These are the cravings of my flesh. These are consumeristic, materialistic ideas that a lot of times we bring into community, having these expectations. Glory. I hope everyone sees how beautiful I look today, right? Thanks. I mean, these are the images that we get. I, I hope that someone will notice how loud I can sing. Or some of us have a friend, and I don't think that he does this for his own glory, but we joke about it. We have this friend that he, when he prays, like it's like God shows up. I mean, he's throwing out more theological terms, and I'm just waiting for him to go, barely, barely, I say unto thee. All right? I mean, this dude, when he prays, it's like, dude, I am never praying in front of you again. Because <laughs> the Shekinah glory of God, that's the presence of God, is like resting as we eat this meal. 
from your prayer. But man, if he's doing that for his own glory, like God, man, I want these guys to think I am an awesome prayer, or I have awesome praying life, you know, or this singing, or did you notice how much I gave, or how hard did I serve here at Mission Church? All of these things, if those are your expectations and the way that you're involved in community through your flesh and your own glory, I want you to know that is not biblical community. It's not gospel-centered community. Our gospel-centered community being saturated in the Word. Think about most church conflicts that happen nowadays. Do they happen over the Word? Do they happen over the gospel? In most cases, that is not what begins to take place. It's not what happens. It's usually over something dumb. Let's face it. It's something over really stupid stuff. Most church, you know, splits most reasons why people leave a church. And I'm not saying that there's never a biblical reason of why to leave a church. Because there is. However, the reason why most people leave a church and just drop a mic at a church is because of their own flesh and their own glory. What does Peter, what does the gospel tell us that should unify us? What should um, cause us to just be bound together and to be linked together? It is the word of God. It is you as an individual and us as a community of faith being centered, being passionate about, being hungry for the word of the Lord. I'm telling you, if this is the only Bible that you get during the week, this is not enough to sustain you as an individual, and it is not enough to sustain you as a community of faith. This week, one of my favorite um, apologists is a guy named Ravi Zachariah. Anybody know Ravi? I mean, just a brilliant guy. And this week, I was listening to him preach on this little radio show that I listened to in the afternoons. And in this, Ravi's like, I want you to know, and he, I can't speak in an Indian accent, and plus I'd probably sound like I was making fun of him, so I won't do that. Um, but... Ravi, in this sermon, is looking at these believers, and he's like, I just want you to know, brothers and sisters, your individual private quiet time is the most important time of your day. It is the essence of your day. Everything else in your life should stem out from you being in the Word every day. And that is true for every one of us. And that is true for us as a believer. It is what binds us, glues us, links us. It is what secures us as a family, as the people of God. And it allows us to function very differently than the world around us. Man, this only happens when the people of Mission Church specifically belong to the community of faith and elevate the Word above all the other benefits of the community. Did you get that? This only happens when people who belong to the church elevate the Word, the Gospel, the Word of God, the truth of God, above all the other benefits of this community. Now, I'm not saying that natural friendships are just bogus. All right, That's not what I'm declaring. I'm not saying that they're evil or sinful. I'm just saying this, they're natural. We were created as relational beings. 
All people, believer or non-believer, are naturally drawn toward people who think and are similar stages of life and, you know, have kids in soccer and have interests and hobbies that are very similar. That's a very natural thing. But a gospel-centered community isn't natural. It's a supernatural thing. The church is not talking about what all people of the world can be involved in. There are communities and things and civic groups and, you know, neighborhoods and all those things that you and I could both be involved in within the community of Bowling Green as a whole that is very natural. But the gospel has called us in the elevating of the word and being united in the word to have a very supernatural experience. And that's what church should be like. That's what church community should be like. Very supernatural. Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop in their book, Compelling Church, offer some great kind of parallels in looking at this idea (coughs) of gospel-centered community. And they kind of paint this out into two different groups. And I want you to think, evaluate. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or tell me what your answer is. But I want you to just personally evaluate, man, how have I typically looked at community? Which of these two groups do I currently fall in? The contrast that they make is the first community. The first community is gospel plus community. All right? First thing they're going to look at is called gospel plus community. In Gospel Plus community, nearly every relationship is founded on the gospel plus something else. All right? So you're a single person, and you want to find a date. So you're thinking to yourself, well, instead of signing up for eHarmony, what I'm going to do is is I'm going to go to church. Because if I go to church, probably there are some pretty and some pretty good-looking and acting females that are also single. So church is something that I can go and be a part of, and yet in hopes of what? Of eventually connecting to this group of people. And we see this all the time in churches. At church, there's the single group, right? There's the musicians group. There's the people who are in similar stages. If you grew up in traditional Bible study, Sunday school sort of uh, understanding of discipleship, then what happened on Sunday morning? Like if you're a baby, you go in this room. If you're in junior high, you go in this room. If you're in high school, you go in this room. If you're in college, you go in this room. If you're newly married, you go to this room. If you're newly married and pregnant, you go to this room. If you're newly married and hate each other, you go to this room. If, if, you're, if you're married and you've got two and a half kids, then you go to this room. If you're older than dirt, you go here and you die. All right? I mean, that's kind of, we like to compartmentalize and segment out affinity groups within the church. And we call this community. Man, if I go and meet these people, I have some friends. I can do that at church. I can find people who are like me within the church. Now, not saying again that this is all bad. But it's not what biblical community is. Biblical community is very different from that. They would say it's this. It is gospel revealed community. See, gospel plus community, you can really have in a natural relationship. You don't need God to have that. But the gospel-revealed community 
is something very different. Contrast this to the gospel-revealing community. In gospel-revealing community, many relationships would never exist but for the truth and the power of the gospel, either because of the depth of care for each other or because two people in relationship have little, little in common but Christ. While affinity-based relationships also thrive in this church, they are not the focus. Instead, church leaders focus on helping people out of their comfort zones to cultivate relationships that would not be possible apart from the supernatural. And so this community reveals the power of the gospel. See, those are two totally different ideas. And the first one, you don't really need Jesus. You just need to find relationships with people who are like you and who are invested in things that you are liking. That's what we all kind of crave. Man, when you walk into a new situation, man, you're looking for people that maybe you can have some commonality with. And yet gospel-centered community is different in this sense, that the gospel should unite people who are totally opposites from one another who have no other affinity, who have no other common interests but the gospel. Now, I think about my time in college. I became friend with a young guy named Ahmad. Ahmad was like this tall, extremely short guy, all right? Um, Ahmad had like the biggest rim glasses that you have ever seen. Ahmad was African-American. He was from West Virginia, all right? He was a, a little bit socially awkward, and Ahmad and I in college became close friends. And I want you to know, in high school, before I was a Christian, Ahmad and I would not have hung out. We were totally opposites on every end of the spectrum. And yet, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this was a relationship that I deeply and immersed in and was saturated in and linked to. Why? Because of the gospel. It was a supernatural relationship. I mean, we all have natural friendships where it's just easy to have a connection with somebody. But that doesn't take the gospel. See, the gospel it allows us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to have a supernatural experience with somebody. Maybe you're a Republican in this room, and your best friend becomes a Democrat because of the gospel. These are the sorts of things that we're talking about. They go on to say this, When Christians unite around something other than the gospel, they create community that would likely exist even if God didn't. Modern-day Tower of Babel. That community glorifies their strength instead of God's. And the very earnest things they do to create this type of community actually undermine God's purposes for it. Gospel plus community may result in the inclusive relationships we're looking for, but it says little about the truth and the power of the gospel. See, the reason why... <coughs> Mission Church should be a diverse congregation, while all uh, representation of races and economic statuses should be involved in our church is because of the gospel. That in and of itself becomes extremely attractive. It becomes extremely compelling. Imagine the state of our United States is, that we are currently in, the racial tension that is beginning to happen. What happens within the community of faith that is so gospel-centered? That African-Americans, whites, Hispanics, 
Asians, for us here in Bowling Green, Bosnian, Russian, Burmese, that are all gathering within the same place. They all come from different, wildly different worldviews, perspectives, languages, and yet what does the gospel do? It is a supernatural moving of the Holy Spirit that allows these people that are just so far away from each other to come together and to be united in one purpose and one accord because at the end of the day, we can divide or even not agree on a lot of things. But if we believe in the gospel and are a gospel-centered church, a Jesus-centered church, a people that are focused upon that above all other things, not our flesh, not our own glory, but on God and God alone, this changes everything. Joe Thorne, a blogger, says this. He says, when the gospel is central in our lives, we long for and discover unity with other believers in the local church not because of any cultural commonality, but because of its, it itself is gospel-centered. That we experience the kind of fellowship that comforts the afflicted, corrects the wayward, strengthens the weak, and encourages the disheartened. See, when a community is built on the Word, there is a, a depth, a devotion, a commitment a passion, a love that looks very different than anything that this world has to offer. It binds people together who had never spoken to each other. It opens up your home and your life to individuals whom are nothing like you. I love these two guys, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. They say this in Total Church. What forms and sustains Christian community is perhaps paradoxically not a commitment to community per se, but a commitment to the gospel word. Sometimes um, <coughs> people place a big emphasis on the importance of community and neglect the gospel word. Community then becomes the goal toward which we work. But Peter says human activity cannot create life that endures. An exclusive focus on community will kill community. It is only the Word of God that creates an enduring commitment, or com excuse me, committed life and love to the community. You see, it's in this. It is in that Word. And we can have a lot of philosophies about a lot of things. We can have a lot of personal opinions about a lot of things. And those things should not divide us if we are followers in Jesus in the Word. They should allow us to be a very multicultural, very diverse congregation. So, the gospel-centered church, if, if that is what Peter is getting to, and I would uh, you know, allude to that all of the gospel is pointing to, this idea of what it means to be a community of faith that is centered on the Word. And one of the first implications of that is love. The gospel-centered community loves earnestly. Go back up to 22. I've been purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since we have the gospel, since we know the gospel, since at the end of the day, it is the gospel that is going to keep us together. Then we are to what? Love 
one another. It's interesting here in the original language we see him say a sincere brotherly love. Sincere means to be unfeigned with, without pretense that man you're gonna it is extremely genuine and authentic that man you can love someone who is nothing like you. And specifically this passage calls us to a brotherly love. Phileo love is the Greek term there. It's where we get the term Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But I want you to get this this morning. This is not talking about mere sibling love. My sister and I, as you know, are, are extremely, extremely close. We've had that privilege, and I thank God that he's graced us to have that sort of connection. But I want you to know there is a greater brotherly love or sisterly love than even what me and my sister have. It, this term, phileo, love, brotherly love, is actually not a natural love like between two siblings. It is in reference to a supernatural love that you can have of someone of faith that is not from your family lineage. It is this idea that, man, there can be, there can be males in this room who love Jesus so much that the other males in this room become their not only best friends, but that there is a deep, deep brotherhood. And I want you to know that is only from God. There can be ladies in our congregation that can be not blood-related in the, in the sense of your DNA, but because of the gospel, a supernatural love that, that causes these ladies and these gentlemen to truly be brothers and sisters. There's a greater relationship than that even of your marriage. It is that of the brotherhood and sisterhood that we will ultimately see when God puts this thing all back together and declares that you and I are eternally brother and sister. There is great power in this understanding of brotherly love. I love what Mark Dever says, and if you've been around our church very long, uh, Mark Phillips, the guy who's pictured back here, who's, they're on their way to um, West Africa, to the Songhai today, actually probably while we speak. But I've heard both Mark Dever and Mark Phillips talk about this, and they say this, you have more common with a brother in Christ in the Sudan than you do with an unbelieving sister. What are they getting at? See, ladies and gentlemen, we need to understand something. That when the gospel transformed us, it transformed everything. There is the, the DNA of our family legacy, but there is a greater DNA that all of us have been covered in, even that Peter alludes to in chapter 1, that we have been covered in the blood of Jesus, that there is a, a greater blood than the ones that was given to you from your birth parents. And that is what unifies us with people throughout the world, that we have more in common with the brother and sister in Christ who lives in a foreign country than we do with our neighbors who do not know Jesus. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 13, it says, let love be genuine, arbor what is evil, Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 
contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Later on, he says this, right? He says, uh, love, love like a brother, a brotherly uh, type of love here. And then he says, and it says, comma, love one another earnestly. The Greek word here for love is different. It's, it's agape. It means unconditional love. So we are supernaturally supposed to love each other like family, and we are simultaneously supposed to love one another in a supernatural sense that is unconditional. No one steps up into a marriage and says, I'm going to love you as long as you don't do this, right? Because most of us wouldn't have made it. The whole idea and why we get teary-eyed is this belief at these weddings that, man, these people are going to love each other, and you can say in your vows, you know, sickness and health, till what? Till death does us part. An unconditional love. And we believe that, and we want to experience that, especially with our spouses. But God is calling us to do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would, in some translator, translations, the word earnestly there is the word fervently. Both of them mean the same thing in the Greek. It, it literally means to be this outstretched, that you are reaching out to express this love. Like an instrument has a string, a guitar has a string on it, and it, you take that string and you stretch it out, and that allows it to eventually to go into tune so it can be played. This is the image that we're getting here, that we're to fervently and earnestly seek to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The Word is the seed of the Gospel in our lives. The fruit of that seed of the Word, truly being in this community, is learning what it means to love. Love is the fruit of that seed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 through 15, it says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, and those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for the sake, <laughs> died and was raised. I, I know of at least 59 one another's in the New Testament, where the Bible will say things like, love one another, John 13, 34, show family affection to one another, Romans chapter 12, like we read, accept one another, Romans 15, serve one another through love, Galatians 5, 13, carry one another's burdens over and over and over and over again. In the New Testament, we see this idea, these commands where it says for Christians, for the community of faith to do such and such to one another. Who's he talking about? The believers. Who's he specifically talking about? The community of faith. That God has commanded us to act and then be involved in these things. God has never called you in salvation to do this thing alone. He's never called you to a solo relationship with the Lord. And then over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, we see the importance of earnestly loving and being deeply immersed in a gospel-centered community. You guys remember the real world? 
I haven't seen it in several, several, several years. But there used to be this show on MTV called The Real World. And so they would show clips of all these people. And as they were showing clips of all these people when it came out, this is what it would say. This is the true story of seven strangers who are picked to live in one house, to work together, and to have their lives taped. And to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start being real. The real world, right? Kentucky's name to fame is that in the first real world, there was a guy from Owensboro. Do you guys remember him that was on the show? Never mind. All right, so we, we see this picture of, of what, what happens when people just stop being polite and start being real with one another. Let's be real. And sometimes being a part of Christian community is extremely difficult. Extremely. I would say that some of the greatest hurts of my life have come from people that I've been, or who are Christians, who I've gone to church with, who have been involved in church with. This thing is messy. But I don't know of any authentic relationship that is worth having that isn't. Do you? And sometimes my marriage is messy. Sometimes Laura and I can be oil and water. And some, my relationship with my children, man, sometimes that is messy. And yet, in, in no way, by God's grace, have I ever thought, man, if she does this one more time, she doesn't fold those towels right. If she doesn't tell me we're having pot roast for days. A few weeks ago, Laura's like, hey, Tuesday, we're having pot roast. It's like your favorite. Tuesday, we're having pot roast. She gets up bright and early, gets ready to go to school. She goes in there, and she's putting all these ingredients into the crock pot. She's like texting me all day long. Hey, tonight's your favorite. We're having pot roast. She's like, hey, when you get home, just turn it down low, let it simmer, and then it'll be ready for us to eat. So I'm like, mmm. So I go home, Pull in my driveway, go into my house to turn it on low. She forgot to plug it in. I was like, looks like we're having ramen. All right. And if she does that one more time, I'm out of here. Man, if she doesn't vacuum and keep the lines just right, I'm out of here. Right? If she shrinks, another one, she doesn't do this stuff. She's awesome. She's like a clean freak. So, uh, but man, if, if you're in your relationship, my child does this one more time, I'm divorcing my kid. Right? I'm giving them the boot. No one in any right mind of their own does that. Why? Because there's something that they are committed to. Marriage is difficult. Raising kids are tough. Have you ever been frustrated with a coworker? Any relationship that is worth having is extremely difficult, but none of us are like, well, I'm taking my ball and going home. You may do that as a kid. Me and my best friend, we would get to playing basketball, all right, and we get to pushing and shoving. And we'd be playing at my house, and he lived like right next door to me. And I'd get really mad at him. I'd be like, Corey, you get out of my yard. Better yet, I'll walk you out of my yard. 
go home, because we'd be so mad at each other. Fifteen minutes later, I'd be knocking on his door. You want to play Nintendo? <laughs> and you just act like nothing happened. Now, I know there's not a female in here that knows about that situation of just, like, getting over it. But most dudes, you blow up, and then it's like, oh, we're done. All right, you're my, you're my friend. You're my, you're my best friend. I know I just told you 15 minutes ago, and I'm not going to address it. To get out of my yard, this is my daddy's house. But you're my, you're my friend. You're my brother. It's messy. It's difficult. And you know why a lot of times there's splits or people leave? It's because they're not looking at it from a biblical perspective. Life on Mission again says this, the church is a bunch of sinful people getting together with a bunch of sinful people, working out sinful lives and believing that God will somehow use it all to grow the group toward maturity. Sounds like a crazy idea. But that is the mystery of how the Holy Spirit works through the imperfect people. I'm sure nine out of ten people reading this book have been hurt by someone in the church. And the tenth person is simply in denial. But as we embrace this messy tension that is community, with its call for patience, grace, perseverance, God's will build His kingdom. Just because community is difficult doesn't give you an opt-out option. Please get this. Please understand this. We must function as a gospel-centered community. Again, we can disagree on a lot of things, but it must be the gospel that causes us to not only to rejoice with one another, but to also to work through our difficulties with one another. It's always amazing to me when you get two Christians in conflict and then they start acting like non-Christians. The gospel compels us. Even this last week when our mission community group met, uh, Pastor Justin had asked us a question in the devos, and the question was, all right, and so I'm, I'll elaborate a little bit. He's saying, all right, what are sins in your life that you just are kind of ignoring? Like, you know they're sins. You know, you probably know you shouldn't be watching that. You know you probably shouldn't be using that language, telling that joke, thinking those thoughts, whatever it is. What are the things within your life that, that you've just become kind of numb and even say things like, at least it's not this bad? Are you willing to tell us what those are? And then the second question was, how can we as a community help you fight that? It was revival quiet in there for a few minutes, and then somebody finally spoke up and said something. But that question of, man, how can we as a community help you fight whatever that sin is? And we began to pose the question, why don't we feel comfortable telling each other that we're screw-ups? Why don't we feel comfortable telling each other, and I'm not saying that there aren't certain topics that should only be talked about with males and certain topics. I, I get that. I've been to some awkward situations in church, especially in testimony time when people tell you everything in mixed company. That's weird, especially when you're 13. I'll tell you the story after church, all right? It was awkward, all right? But why don't we feel like that? 
Why don't we feel like we can come and say, this week, Laura and I have a very open relationship, and, and we ask each other all sorts of things. And even this last week, um, Laura randomly asked me a question, and I don't think we have any kids. She doesn't count. Uh, she is a kid, but she didn't count. All right, so Laura asked me, she was like, hey, Eric, I just want to do my monthly check here. Are, are you looking at pornography? Not because she had any reason to believe that I was. But I, I honestly, I looked at my wife and I said, no, I'm not. Then, of course, she throws the, the, the attachment to that email there, and she says, are you tempted to? Yes. Yes. If you own a computer, how can you not be anymore? Because you can type in Jesus and bad stuff come up. The temptation, of course, is there. And some of you are like, I can't believe you guys have those kind of conversations. It's like, man, why aren't we having those kind of conversations? Man, I often wonder, even in our world of what we've seen over the last little bit of, man, if, if guys and families and ministers had the opportunity and church people had the opportunity to really be in a community where they just laid it out on the line and said, man, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm struggling. I want to clue everybody in. Everybody in this room is a sinner. And if you've been saved, you've been made a saint by Jesus. But you are daily warring against the flesh of your life. And so we need to take the scales off and just stop thinking that everybody around us is some angelic being because they are not. Even if you don't see outward sin, what is taking place inside of their two ears where their brain rests is probably extremely dark. Whether it's jealousy, thinking critically about someone, thinking bad about someone, having envy, all of these sorts of things that are taking place inside the minds of the believers. Gospel-centered community is a community where people have been exposed and they're depraved individuals. And that they're so ridiculous about God's love being shown, that they're willing, because of the cross and the resurrection and love that we've been shown, is that, man, we're going to speak truth. Hey, man, yep, you screwed up. You should not be doing this. This is not healthy for you. This is not God-honoring for you. This is not glorifying God for you. But, man, we're not kicking you out because of this. We're going to love you like brothers and sisters in Christ. See, that's what the church should be like. It should be a place where we are open and honest in communicating these things. And I don't think anybody but Jesus has experienced as much hurt from church people. Can we agree on that? Think about it. Three years, 12 guys. He does life with these men. They're his brothers. They're his ministry partners. They're his team. When push comes to shove and it gets, it gets ugly, what do they do? Judas turns him in. Peter denies him. All the other disciples, but John, who appears to stay with Mary, Jesus, the, the, the mother of Jesus, all flee from the dude. Their lives have revolved around Jesus. And yet when it became tough, when it became messy, what do these followers of Jesus do? They all flee. And so what is my response if that's the case? I'm going to go find a new group of friends. I'm going somewhere else. And if you ain't got my back when it gets bad, then we're done. 
That's my natural tendency. And yet, what do we see Jesus do for these people? What do we see Jesus do for these individuals? He dies for them. He hears their messiness. He doesn't just go, whoops, God, we, we messed up here. Just ascend, let's rapture on up before I have to go to this death thing. What does he do? He willingly takes upon himself the cross for people who have backstabbed him, come against him, warred against him, criticized him, denied him, turned him in for some money. Jesus goes as far to die. The last thing, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. The gospel-centered community grows in maturity. So put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and evil and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's get what he says there. So as a community of faith, if we love each other, if we've been centered in the word of God, we should not be malice toward one another. That means that we shouldn't want to do evil toward each other. We shouldn't be deceitful for another. We, we shouldn't come, hypocrisy is this whole acting term, right? You wear masks. He's saying to us, man, if you really love each other, if you're really centered in the gospel, then you shouldn't be wearing masks around each other. It's the whole southern lying thing. How you doing? I'm doing fine, liar, all right? I mean, we shouldn't be doing these things. We should be open and honest. We shouldn't be envious of one another. We shouldn't slander each other when, when we're away from each other. We shouldn't be talking bad. If you can't say it to someone, you probably shouldn't be saying it. I mean, that's pretty elementary good citizenship beyond just the gospel. Just being reminded this morning of, of the importance of those things. And then quickly some applications here. So why aren't we seeing more gospel-centered community taking place in the church? I would continue th three reasons. First one is, is we make it cheap. <coughs> we make gospel-centered community extremely cheap. We treat it more like a minute mart. We come in, we get something, we leave. We, we can just miss the gathering of the saints. We, we say things like we don't really need anyone. We can just, again, kind of shadow in, shadow into a mission community group, or even if we're involved in those, not really be involved in the life of the church, but we just come, we get something, and then we head out. We say things like, no one ever speaks to me. Um, I just don't have time. The church is too big. The church is too small. They don't have enough programs. They have too many programs. They don't sing my favorite songs. We have unresolved conflict. The crowd is too old or the crowd is too young. The pastor upset me. They don't have donuts every Sunday. I mean, whatever it is. We make the gospel community, gospel-centered community, extremely cheap. Man, if you don't want to make it cheap, you've got to value it. That's my prayer, is that you will begin, and that we will begin to value our time as Mission Church. That we'll make time for it, that we'll sacrifice for it. That if you have children, that you will teach them the value of importance of being involved in a community of faith. The second thing, or the second reason why we don't often see this, is we make it a God. We make gospel-centered community a God. Sometimes we fall into this trap of putting expectations on our brothers and sisters that they cannot live up to perfectly. We make church about me, or we make church about someone else. We, 
we make it about these things and we have these expectations. And so when we get disappointed by this community of faith or by the preacher or pastors, then what do we do? Man, we're just going to drop this. We say things like, I'm not being fed. I don't agree with everything that's being preached. My needs aren't being met. If I serve the church, God will be impressed with me. I just don't feel connected. We don't have any friends there. The crowd is too old. The crowd is too young. We start making all these sorts of expectations and statements because we really want the church to be our functional Savior. Man, never do that. And if you're here long enough, we're going to disappoint you. But if we're brothers and sisters in Christ who are sending the gospel, there should be a, a process of reconciling that relationship in hopes of bettering the kingdom of God. That every one of us can be open to saying, man, I want to I press into you on this issue. Man, I want to, sister, I want to I celebrate with you and what God is doing with you as well. The last thing, the reason why we don't see it sometimes is that we're not on mission together. We're not on mission together. See, since the Old Testament, God has declared that I have a, a set-apart people. He did this with the Israelites. In this community of faith that are going to be centered in my glory and my purposes for the earth, <coughs> that their goal is, is to be a light in the dark world. That they're to be a blessing to the nations. This is the call of God. This is what he's set up for the, the people of Israel, but I would continue that it is fulfilled in the, in the people of God, the church. And the reason why we don't see gospel-centered community taking place at the depths that it should is a lot of times is because we're not engaging in mission, being the light in our dark city. See, we should be loving such, uh, each other in such a, a radical way that literally people, when they see us interacting with one another, whether that's eating a meal with each other or hanging out in our neighborhoods, where they're asking questions, man, what is different about this group of people? But they will never ask those questions if we continue to remain and do life and do community, do friendship, do marriage, do children raising, all those things exactly the way that the world is doing it. God has called us to something different. God has called us to something greater. So don't make it cheap. Make it a covenant. Don't make it God. Understand that it is godly, but it is not God. That it's a beautiful opportunity that we have, but don't put God expectations on the people of God to the degree that they can never meet them. May we engage in mission with one another. May we live life in such a way that it draws all men and women to himself. Let's pray.